Once upon a time, like all good stories begin, my son walked into the kitchen in our rambling adobe home, tight-lipped, pensive, grinding on something. What is it, buddy? I asked. He looked me in the eye and said, Dad, why do you make movies about old guys sitting in chairs? I fell out laughing. Then he said, and can I meet that DEA guy, Hector? He seems like a badass. He was talking about Hector Boreas from The Last Narc, and he was right. Hector is a badass, and I do often make movies about old guys sitting in chairs. But he was wrong about one thing. In that movie, Hector wasn't in a chair. He was standing at a bar, a legendary old watering hole above Malibu, where Peckinpah used to drink and eat steaks and probably get in the occasional fistfight. Partly, I chose the place for the legend, and partly because somehow, it just felt right, which is a lot of what making movies is all about. Later on, I sat down with my boy and watched Virunga to show him that there's all sorts of ways to make a doc, and not all of them involve old guys sitting in chairs. For Orlando von Einsiedel, the cocktail was the Congo, mountain gorillas, war, poaching, and oil. But more than any of those things, it's about the people whose lives collide and intersect in the story. Django, this one's for you. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Orlando von Einsiedel. Orlando, welcome to the show. So glad to uh, have the chance to connect with you this morning. Thank you for, for having me. Lovely, lovely to, lovely to talk. Um, you make movies about heroes, you know, in a world that seems increasingly filled with nothing but bad news. I'm curious how you, what magnetizes you to your subjects and how do you go about deciding, okay, this is a movie that I'm going to commit the next, you know, years of my life to? Okay, it's a, it's a very, it's a very good question. It's, well, once upon a time, I was a, I was a professional snowboarder. Um, and um, and I, I, I learned the, the, the craft of, of, of kind of filmmaking, making snowboard films, but, but that, that, that took me, in the end, I studied social anthropology and, and it took me into documentaries a big, to begin with, making kind of like news investigative type stuff for, for networks like Al Jazeera English and, and, and kind of news, news channels. And a lot of those early films, they were, they were very gritty sort of undercover investigations where there was some, some wrong in the world. I, I'd often do them in, in, in places that were countries experiencing conflict or you know, where there was instability. And the interesting thing is the more of these I made, the more often I'd be on shoots and I'd come across a story that I found that was really like positive and really hopeful and right. involved somebody that was extraordinary. I'd read stories like that from places like Afghanistan or you know, the Niger Delta, or I'd never read positive stories from those, those types of locations back, back in the UK. And I always thought I'd much rather make stories about that, those kind, you know, about inspiring, hopeful stories than, than these, these journalistic ones that I was working on. And, um, and to cut a long story short, one day I came across a story about a, a skateboard school in, um, in Kabul. And, and it sort of brought, it kind of brought the two world, my, my past of, of kind of snowboarding and skateboarding and, and, and action sports with what I was doing was spending time in, in you know, in those kind of locations. Um, and it was a story about 
these young boys and girls and their hopes and dreams and ultimately they get a, a lesson known for the course of a day uh, and they get to skateboard and it was that that was the skateboarding was kind of the hook that got them into this this free school and i and i cobbled together a little bit of money and made a short film about about that that school and we we put it up on just on vimeo this was sort of 12 15 years ago and it went viral and it was like a light bulb moment because i thought i'm not the only one actually that maybe wants to occasionally get news that's that is positive um, from certainly from places where you rarely hear any positive stories from, and and in some ways that sort of charted a, a path for a long time of of the kind of things that I was looking for, the kind of things I was interested in. Well, it's it's interesting because your your sensibility blends this, I, I guess, kind of the gonzo, you know, the the sort of extreme gonzo with these people that are doing something to impact the world in a positive way. And it's a, it's a beautiful and, and, and powerful and potent combination. Tell me the story of Virunga and, and kind of how, you know, behind every movie is the story of making the movie. And I'm curious with that one, like, how did it begin? What launches you on that journey? And, and sort of what do you find once you begin? Virunga began, I, I was making a film in, in Sierra Leone um, about illegal fishing and, and I, I, there was a newspaper and I, I picked it up and I'd look and there was, there was a story about this place called the Virunga National Park in Democratic Republic of Congo and I'd never heard of this, this place and it was a story about the rangers of this park trying to rebuild it after 20 years of, of, of conflict. The imagery in this article were of volcanoes with lava, a lava lake, and mountain gorillas. And to me, it, it was like Jurassic Park. I was like, what? how can this place even exist that I've never heard of? And it was a story about a rebirth of, 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 of a place that's had a very difficult history. Um, so I thought that, that, sounds, that sounds like an extraordinary story. Um, and I, I, I got in touch with the park's management. They ignored me. I got in touch again. They, they ignored me. Anyway, I was very The persistent. usual. <laughs> the usual. Right. And I was, you, I was you, have, you have to be a madman to make a documentary, right? And, and sort of relentless to the point. Like, So I'm sorry. Continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I was no. just thinking how familiar that sounded. The relentless quest. Ex ex exactly. And I, I think in the end... Um, you know, they'd had lots of, there was always interested journalists, but um, eventually they got bored of me asking. They said, why don't you come out, see what you think? Um, so, I, so I went out and I'd been there a few weeks and, you know, I, got, I started to get to know the, the rangers and, and, and the management of, of this, this, this national park. And over, over lunch one day, I was, they said, listen, Orlando, the, the story that, that you were interested in telling, that's all, that's all Good, it's a lovely story. But there's another story here that, that we think is, is much more important and interesting. Um, and they basically, they started to tell me this story of a British oil company that was illegally exploring for oil. And they, they, you know, they were telling me about what, what these guys were doing and they, they wanted to know if there was any way, well, firstly, that would I be interested in covering that, but also whether or not I could do anything to potentially help gather evidence about um, these, these illegal actions. And, and as I said at the beginning, my background was these gritty journalistic investigations and we did a lot of stuff with undercover cameras and, and hidden cameras. Um, and so to cut a long story short, I went back They recruited, home. you sat down to get them and they recruited you. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, that's kind of how it worked. I, I went back home, uh, we gathered a small amount of money and we bought a lot of, 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 of sort of undercover camera equipment. And we came back out and we started to work with the rangers 
to document these illegal acts. And so the story took this this big, this kind of U-turn very, very quickly. I mean, I'd like to think, Tiller, that the end result is it still carries kind of the flame of the initial idea that it is it is forward-looking. Um, but yes, the, I suppose the, the meat of the film is, is, is quite different. Well, it's it's quite interesting, really, because like what you latched on to sort of from the initial article is there's these visual elements, right? It's volcano, it's gorillas, it's park rangers. And all of that stuff is the kind of, um, you know, are some of the opening images of the film and is the sort of scenic backdrop and the spiritual underpinning of it in some way or another. And yet, as you get into it, and I'm curious how you go from, okay, because this same thing has happened to me countless times. Whenever I start making a movie, I'm absolutely convinced that it's one movie. And if it doesn't take like a wild left turn at some point, like I feel like I've like fucked up and not done my job. But it's so fascinating, you know, in 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 your journey here. Um, when do you begin to kind of how quickly do you begin to lock on characters and triangulate the trajectories of, you know, your primary characters and begin to sort of see a structure? When does it become to sort of start to make itself manifest? Well, I, 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 it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I think once upon a time, I'd want everything to be rigidly planned. And, and, I, and you know, it's like, this is the film, nothing can deviate from this. And if anything deviates, it's, we've ruined the it. A failure. And, I'd, right. and I'd, be really, I'd be really rigid about that. Um, I, I think as, as, I, as I've got older, I've realized the joy of documentary is that it can change. You might go out with an idea for what a story is, but you need to be open to change, not just from a story perspective, but you need to, be, you need to listen to people on the ground who, who, who are actually, who, you know, who really know the situation. I, you know, I come with all this baggage of, of being from, from the UK, of, you know, and, and being a white man, for instance. I come with all these preconceptions and all sorts of stuff. You need to be open to listen to people saying, do you know what, You're, the way you want to tell this film is interesting, but you're wrong about X, Y, and Z, and, and adapt and listen. Um, so I do, I do at the beginning, I will still come up with what I think might be the arc of a story. I, I will try and identify who I think might be kind of the right protagonists to tell it. But, but ultimately, the, I, I always have the flexibility to, to I, I like to think I have the flexibility to pivot when I realize that I'm wrong or that somebody has told me something which is totally different to what I imagined and I need to take that very seriously. Well, it's interesting too, because I feel like, you know, you have, you, one sets out with one's intentions and, and the sort of goal and focus on it. But I think that, at least in my experience, stories have a logic to themselves like the story knows what it wants and at a certain point it's your job to sort of sit back and listen rather than force like you have to sort of conjure it into the world with like force of will but then you have to sort of sit back and let it pull you toward what it wants to be so so drill deeper in in the kind of you know character casting for, for lack of a better word process with Virunga when do you sort of decide okay these are the folks that I'm going to lock in on how far you know I guess start with that like so, character selection so um I I and I'm casting my mind back because this was this was a, a, a little while ago um I, I remember going out and we started filming with probably about 10 different different individuals um, 
and I suppose we, we, you know, casting as wide a net as possible from some some guys in the management team to some people that work specifically with animals to some of the people that work slightly more with on the kind of security side of things. And I, I think in in the end, where to, to your point about the story having its own logic, um, you know, it, it, I suppose we we ended up with with somebody that really captured the heart of of this national park. It was somebody that worked very closely with, in, in this case, with, with, with orphaned mountain gorillas. There was, um, uh, his name's Andre Bauma, and, and he is this extraordinary man who has devoted his life to looking after, you know, orphan, orphan gorillas. We ended up uh, working with, um, following Emmanuel Demerode, who was the park warden, because he sort of had this overview of, of everything that was going on. And it felt like we wanted that, that kind of, I guess, the overview perspective. We ended up following a journalist, a French journalist called Melanie Gooby, um, and she, in some ways, along with a park ranger called Rodrigue Catembo, th- they both drove the investigative side of, of, of the film, and it was through their, their experiences of wearing these button cameras that we got to understand what was going on with, with the oil situation. And so, it, you know, from 10 characters, that went down to, to kind of four that carried the kind of, I guess, the key, the key elements of... Of, of the story. And they're, they're four amazing characters. Um, it's almost like, you know, if you were going to cast dream, you know, if you were going to write the script, those are the characters that you would cast. And I was really struck, I mean, I was struck by all of them, but I was struck, um, let's discuss in particular Melanie, because it's, you know, at a glance, you see this sort of young French woman um, and the, the, the sort of um, you know the balls on her, and the fearlessness, and the and the willingness to kind of dive into the story. I think are absolutely amazing. And and when do you realize? Because it's interesting, right? You're you're having to find these stories that are going to intersect as you begin to craft it structurally. It's like what are the points of contact, and how do they culminate? So talk about her, just sort of your impressions of her, or what else, uh, whatever else you have to share about her, and then talk about kind of crafting the character intersections. So 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 Melanie, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Melanie is extraordinary. Um, she was a very brave. Um, war correspondent, fr- frankly, working out in, in, in Goma, which is the regional capital. Um, and I'd, I'd met her, I'd been introduced to her a number of times. Uh, you know, I, 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 was, I lived out there for, for on and off for two years. Um, and I've been introduced to Melanie several times. And, you know, she was just another foreigner out there. Um, one day we, were, we, we happened to be, I, she was going to report on a situation, I was going to film it. So we, we spent a day together. And... During this day together, she said, oh, you know, I, I'm, I know some of the guys that work for the oil company. Uh, we were just having this very off, off, you know, off the cuff chat. And I'd also been, I had to be very secret about what I was doing. So everyone that I met, I always would just say, I'm making a film about gorillas. So, uh, you know, when she said this, uh, I, my ears obviously pricked up massively, but I played it very cool. I was like, oh, that's very interesting. You know, tried to find out a bit more how, how close she was with them. Um, but I, I felt in the end that she was trustworthy, that her morals and ethics were all in the right place. And if I told her about what we were doing, you know, at, in terms of gathering this evidence and working with the National Park, she would hopefully be on side. And so I told her, I said, we've been documenting this, this, this oil company for, for several months now. If you know them, would you be interested in working with us? And, 
you know, as as a journalist at heart, she she says, okay, let me think about it. But ultimately, yes. And so I worked with her to to, to train her up in how to use undercover cameras. Um, and she began to meet with the meet with these guys that she'd met. She wasn't actually that good friends with them. She she was at sort of acquaintances with them. So she began to meet up with them and document conversations with them and and yeah, at the same time try and elucidate information from them about their plans and their feelings about the park and you know in the end some of the most extraordinary scenes I think in the film are things that she filmed where you hear what t- to your point earlier yeah Tilla, like, these are almost cartoon baddies the way they talked about this you know the Virunga National Park is one of the most biodiverse places on earth and they talked about you know fucking they, they would say things like who gives a fuck about a monkey yeah um and you know th- this this is to drill oil for profit to and but the very act of drilling for oil in the center of this park would have destroyed the park it would have destroyed the fact that this this it, you can't have a national park and drill in it so what would have happened is the park would have been deregistered as a national park we have all seen in places you know in in the region where oil exploration has gone terribly wrong because there aren't necessarily all of the same checks and balances that there might be in in other, in other parts of the world. The Niger Delta is a perfect example of where an oil companies have run riot and it's been an, an environmental, a social disaster. Um, and Eastern Congo was still at this time a very active conflict zone. So how could an oil company guarantee security of its pipelines? So how in the hell are you financing this movie as you go? And like, how long are you shooting? And kind of, you know, it's because it's interesting. When I rewatched the film, I sat down with my um, 13-year-old son. And I was like, let's watch this movie together without any sort of preface. And... A, he was riveted, and B, and it's funny because it's like I've been doing this for years, and he's like, okay, now, so tell me about documentaries. So here's all the elements and began analyzing it, you know, and I was like, yes, exactly. Um, So I guess my question is you're blending a – like, A, how are you financing this movie and keeping it going? And then I want to get into some craft-specific questions. So um, early on, some 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 individuals um, who who supported the Runga National Park gave gave us a small grant, um, and that that got us going at the very beginning. Um, we had we had a bit of money from from Al Jazeera, who who funded us. They they wanted a TV show about a, a sort of TV show about the, the national park. We 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 made that, but we also saved some of the money to spend on on on, on making the feature documentary. Um, but but ultimately for the first year, it, it was, those were the only real two sources of money. Um, it, it was only really possible because I was on my own with a, with a tiny SDLR camera um, and, um, and the park put me up. They gave me a tent, they provided meals. So like actual costs on the ground were really, really cheap. Um, it was only when we started to have to edit the film that we, we needed money. Um, and that's when we made a much more sort of concerted effort to apply to film funds and um, and, and get more help from the documentary community. And, and explain that process, because it's interesting. You know, it, it's in the States, we're sort of 
without, you know, government funding and the ability to do it, we're so kind of beholden to, okay, you have to go to the streamers and get the buy-in and it's going to be a commercial thing and, and sort of the process. Explain kind of, you know, how it works in the UK and like, what exactly do you do? You've got this amazing footage, you've been shooting for a year, now you realize kind of what you may have. How do you then, how, you know, how do you get, how do you get to the next step? So, it, it was actually, it was a complete nightmare for, for, for two reasons. The, the, the first is, in any sort of public pitching forum, um, we, we, we had to keep everything we were doing in terms of investigation top secret. Um, there were lives at stake, um, you know, people that spoke up publicly in Eastern Congo against the oil exploration, they ended up in jail, lots of people ended up in jail, they ended up being attacked. You know, this, it was really, really like dangerous um so we we ended up doing some some public pitching in in documentary forums but we could only say we're making film about mountain gorillas and I, I, we you know we weren't very successful i think people could felt that well that doesn't sound like a really three-dimensional story it sounds a bit simplistic you know are you guys the right people to even tell that story etc etc so we had that problem on the one hand on the other hand well, we, when we did take it to some British TV networks and we were a bit more open about what we were doing, they, they couldn't visualise what the final film would, would be. They said, well, we think this is a National Geographic film about gorillas and we think this is a, a 60 minute, you know, like the CBS 60 minute kind of investigative film. And, but they're very separate films and you can make both of them, but don't, don't even attempt to combine them. And I, and I actually found that, I found that really, I, I, you know, this was, this was the first feature documentary I'd ever made. I, I was talking to people that were, had loads of experience. I, that really wobbled me. I was like, well, who am I to say this, we can combine these two things if all of these really experienced people are telling me you can't. And I remember thinking, you know, is it arrogant to even assume that we could do this? Um, it, it, it turns out in the end, <laughs> I was introduced to the team, uh, they were called BritDoc, they're now called Doc mm -hmm. Society. And they, they were incredible. They, 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 they could visualize <laughs> what the film could be. And they actually opened a lot of doors um, to, to, to various different funding bodies and helped us generate most of the money that funds the film. Well, and it's 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 fascinating to hear you tell that story because it's precisely the like genre busting blend of kind of combustible elements that make this so uh complex and nuanced and frankly singular or original, right? And people are so often um and particularly among like seasoned professionals, it's like there are these blinders on. Well, this is the way we do it, you know? And yet, like, you're, I think what all you bring to it is kind of that combination of the gonzo, of the nature film, of the investigative piece, you know? And, and, and that's what makes it, I think, such a, you know, beautiful and powerful film. Thank you for persisting when you were being told no, you know? It's, 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 it's amazing. Um, and then how do you get to the piece finally when like Leo and Appian Way is involved and like what's what's that stage of the process? Well, I, I, so around a sort of a, a year, a year and a half in, um, I, I finally got a, a producer, who, Joanna Natsagara, who, who, who filled a very big hole on the project. And she was she was obviously key to, to raising a lot of the, the, the sort of finishing funds. I, what, do, what do we do? We, we, we spent, you know, we, we cut this in a, in a year. Um, and we we released it at, at the Tribeca Film Festival. Um, 
Joanna had taken the film to a number of sales agents and spoken to a few networks. So we'd, we'd shown them an almost finished cut and we were turned down by, a lot of the sales agents said, well, you know, it's it's 80% not in English. Um, we just don't think it's it's gonna make any money. Therefore it's not commercial, no, you know, no thank you. And so we went into Tribeca with, you know, pretty nervous mm -hmm. about what we do with this film. And I, I, I should say that it, early on, we we realized, and the part, the part realizes too, that the film could be, it, it couldn't. It wouldn't just be um, something that could document all of the wrong wrongdoing of this oil company. It could also be a tool in, in protecting the park long term by exposing exposing what was happening, exposing the, the the illegal actions. You know, generating mass awareness of not just the situation but the national park in the first place. Um, and so, so we went in with this enormous expectation and, and hope that the film. Could do some could do some goods, but but that was only going to be possible if if we could get people to watch it. Yeah. Um, uh, what what happened is um, we screened it after Tribeca. We screened at Hot Docs, and at Hot Docs, um, um, Adam Del Deo from from Netflix was in the audience, um, and and he came afterwards and he started speaking to Joanna, and said, "I like the film. Let's let's keep talking." And Netflix was, re you know, I. I will admit I'd barely heard of Netflix at this point. This was 2013. Um, they, they'd done three sort of documentaries. Who the hell is Netflix? Yeah, who the hell is Netflix? Yeah, well, no, exactly. it's true. You were, I mean, you're, you're, you're there at the, at the rebirth of the company from like a mail-order DVD company to the biggest movie studio in the history of the world. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you know, it was a, we felt it was a risk to go with Netflix. I remember we were talking to to the guys, you know, the team at the park, the National the National Park, saying, "Well, you know, this is this studio called Netflix. They're, they're, they're the new guys on the block, but we think they're going to be big." And um, you know, it took it took some convincing of every all our partners that this was the right the mm -hmm. right thing to do. But you know, it it, it was, um, and Netflix were extraordinary. And it very interestingly, already at that point, they knew that subtitles didn't matter to them. They they felt that. This doesn't matter to our, our audience. Our audience is global. You know, it, it shouldn't matter really what language it's in. Um, and um, they 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 showed the film to to Leonardo DiCaprio. And um, one day, Joanna and I got an email in our in our inbox from, and we both messaged each other saying, "Is, is it is it really him? Surely that's 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 not real." Right? And, and is this right? Is this a joke or is it right? <laughs> yes, it, it, um, it was him. And, and he basically said, "Look, I, I love the film. What can I do to help?" And we said, "Will you join us? Will you become our you know our executive producer and help spread awareness?" Um, and so you know that that kind of began this momentum for the film. Um, and, um, you know, combined with, with a very shrewd impact campaign that Joanna and her team had, had worked out. Um, and we, we started screening it to the business community. We started screening the film to the political community, obviously to the general public. All of these different things that we hoped would have, you know, we didn't know what would work, but we hoped together we'd find the right lever that would push somebody at the oil company to make the right decision to decide that exploring for oil in Africa's oldest national park was was a very bad idea. Um, and six months after the film was released, at uh, their following AGM, um, they they announced they were pulling out. So you know, I, I mean, listen, I have to say, lots of other people were doing stuff as well, uh, but I, I'd like to think our film played a played a played a key role in, in that as well. I mean, un 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 unquestionably, it did, and and. 
And I think that brings me to a good pivot point, which is cut to Portugal and the new film. Um, tell us about the new film and um, how would you describe it and how does this one begin for you? So so this is a film called From Devil's Breath. It's, it's a short, um, it's 40 minutes and it's, you know, I, I <clears throat> like the climate crisis, it's, you know, it's, it's the big, it's the big issue of our age, but I, I've, I've always, I've, I've told films about, about it before, but I have to say, I've, I've always struggled to tell films about it, it because, you know, it, it's, the concept is quite nebulous. Um, the antagonists, mm-hmm. they're not, they're not clear because we're all technically an antagonist in some form, right? And contributing. We're all contributing. Um, and, you know, I think until fairly recently, it's been quite hard to, to show really the dramatic effects of it. Um, I, I think that's changed in the last few years, definitely, but, but, but it has been difficult. It's also, I think it's something that really turns people off because we're so, it, it, the world is so difficult, it's so challenging at the moment that just another film about another disaster that we all feel we can't really do much about, who's going to watch it? Um, mm-hmm. but, it but in this case, they, they felt there was a window... Because of the story, sort of focuses on two two kind of competing narratives that, that actually come together. One one is about a scientist and his team, and he is this extraordinary scientist who, for his PhD, he he decided to count how many trees there were on the planet. And and you would have thought that somebody had done that before, but it turns out no one had done it accurately. <laughs> and so he counts how many trees there are, and it turns out there's there's around three trillion trees on the planet. And then he, then he thinks, okay, well, how much room is there to, to, to plant or restore tree, new trees in, in areas which have been degraded, in areas which aren't cities or, or, or fields for growing crops? And he works out that there's basically, there's room for a trillion trees and a trillion new trees. And then he works out that if that happens, if those trees all grow to maturity, it, it would lead to 30% of current atmospheric, like current carbon levels in the atmosphere that human beings have put up there being absorbed into these trees. So it's this extraordinary sort of discovery um, about a very low-tech innovation to mitigate the climate crisis. I thought that was, was, was amazing. But that led us on mm-hmm. to a story in Portugal um, where there was a fire in 2017 um, that was this absolutely catastrophic fire caused by climate change on one hand they'd had three weeks of 40 plus degree centigrade heat which is you know over 100 degree heat plus they have a, a culture they have um, these vast fields of of eucalyptus trees these vast plantations of a single crop that's ultimately flammable and professor Kraufer, who's the scientist who, who did the tree counting his team were looking at doing work in this region in to, to, for replanting and reforestation to, to help rebuild it after this fire. So, so it's a long way of saying the story follows a community trying to rebuild after this, this tragedy. Um, and in some ways, is, uh, it, it sort of follows the tragedy on the day of, of, of the crisis, mixed with a story of, of restoration and, and, and rebuilding. And the, the, the narratives crash together. What I thought was so brilliant about the construction of it is a couple of things. One is, like you said, the there's a sort of abstraction to, to the sort of, you know, climate crisis, right? And yet 
by taking a story, it reminds me of like, you know, I think Flannery O'Connor, who said those stories that are kind of relentlessly local in nature become universal in their resonance because they are so local. And, you know, all of having lived in Southern California and Topanga Canyon for 20 years and having had to evacuate and load the pets and the passports and the kids into the car with the fires each year, and then now being in New Mexico and having just had sort of wildfires tear through, there is something, I think, universally tangible and terrifying about the power and prevalence of these fires. And so by rooting in this small, seemingly small story, you're able to tell this universal one. And then, you know, the blending of the these narratives, it's funny because I was retelling my, my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter this morning, the story of the movie. And I watched as she sort of sat wrapped. And, and, and I think what most moved her and connected with her was the ability to for all of us to have an impact. And it's the blending of these two stories, the sort of tragedy and the uplift and, and the kind of therapeutic or a pathway towards healing that the, that the, that the collision of these two narratives tell. Um, I, I thought it was just incredibly moving and inspiring. Um, how do you begin to craft the, the sort of, again, the intersection or the intercut of those narratives? Because like as it begins, these are two seemingly very disparate narrative strands and then how do you begin to weave them together i don't think it, i don't think it helps to just tell a really really terrible story about the climate crisis anymore i think i think people are aware of it and and it just turns people off so you need to if you if you're going to tell a story about it you, you in some ways need to tell part of the solution needs to be part of it um i think ultimately we 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 were blessed by the fact that Professor Crowther's work took him to Portugal, and therefore it, it, it came together with the story that we were telling. We were telling there. Um, I suppose if, if we didn't have that that sort of good fortune that physically his story mm -hmm. came together with the story in Portugal, it would have been a much more sort of thematic weaving together. I think it's more satisfying that he that he is there, um, and I've definitely you know th there's been stories in the past where I think, you know, there's been an element of, of construction to create that kind of, that, that tie. Intersection, so that the audience right. does, an intersection, so the audience does feel um, satisfied. In this case, we, we were lucky enough that there was, a, there was a, a more sort of seamless, natural one. How do you decide the runtime, you know, for a film like this, uh, like short subject versus feature length? And, you know, what is the appropriate shape of the story and 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 consequently, um, you know, length and construction. Talk about how you find how you found that in this particular case. Do you know, I think I think there's a number of considerations um, about when when it comes to sort of working out the length of of, of the film. Um, I've I've made shorts in the past where the decision to make it a short was actually more about the urgency of the story. So we, we made a film five or six years ago called The White Helmets which um, <clears throat> is about rescue workers in Syria. And you know, I, I know, as a, as a film team, we know how long a feature takes. It's, it's normally about three years. You know, from the moment you kind of come up with the idea to the moment it's released, it's a three-year cycle. And, and with what was happening in Aleppo at the time, 
it it felt that was just too long to wait. It sort of felt like mm-hmm. the, the the benefits of making a film, the potential benefits of making a film about the White Helmets that they might you know, garner from, from donations or what, or what have you, or the spotlight that a film could shine on this issue. It felt like in three years' time, it, this, it, it just would have all, it, would have, it wouldn't... The urgency's gone. The urgency's gone. Um, and so we made, it, we made a really conscious decision then to make it a short film. There was, there was 100% the material there to make it a feature. And people since, since us made, you know, made a feature about the White Helmets. Um, so, so in that case, it was about the urgency. In, in the case of From Devil's Breath, it, it um, I, I, there was the subject matter to to to, to make a feature, but I, but I think in in this case it was I, th- I think it was twofold. It, it felt that around the sort of forty minute mark was was the right level to keep the film the, the intensity that we wanted it to have. We wanted mm-hmm. it to have that emotional intensity of the story of of the fire, um, and um, and also. You know, in this case, there was a budget issue. We didn't have that much money, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, um, so you know, we, that limited how much time we could spend doing it. Um, and and a short is just cheaper. Um, mm-hmm. um, the, the archival, uh, and, and I don't know what all it, you know. It was sort of original photography versus archival, but the 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 immersive nature of the opening of the film where you're sort of dropped right in without preface into the flames. Talk about the the constituent elements that this is composed of. Like, you know, how much is it interview driven? How much is it going to be verite and 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 kind of and the acquisition of that material? So, <clears throat> I mean, it, this this film, funny enough, it sits it's on kind of three planes. That there's there is um, there is archival material from from the day of of the fire itself. Um, and that is a that is a layer that runs right the way through the film. That there are there are interviews. There's an interview layer with 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 individuals from Portugal who survived that 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 day and and are today rebuilding their community. And then there is a there is a sort of verite present day unfolding layer, which is which is about mm-hmm. is about the rebuilding the the restoration part of the story. Um, and and the film. You know, I, I have to say it was, it's, it's difficult weaving so many layers together, especially in in, the, in a forty minute time length. I I believe we got the best version of it that we that we could, and uh, you know, hopefully people agree that it that it roughly works. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful and powerful film. Thank thank th- thank you. Thank anyway, you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt. Continue continue about the uh, about the because it is an interesting blend of elements. And how conscious are you when the film begins? Okay, I'm going to shoot X number of interview days. I need a certain number of verite scenes. Like how, like, are how much is there a process of discovery versus kind of a playbook on the front end? And how closely do you adhere to or depart from the playbook? Okay, so it's a very, I, do you know, I'll, I'll be totally honest. On this film, I probably went in a lot less prepared than I might, than I might normally be. Um, and, it, and, and the reason is, is because I, I sort of trusted the story. I thought this is, this is such a powerful story that I don't need to plan loads of like sort of verite scenes. I felt, I felt if we did, if we did the kind of the key interviews in the very first instance, because a large part of the story is past tense. Um, I think mm-hmm. if we did that, that would ultimately decide everything else. Um, 
And so it was only it was it was on location after doing the interviews, sitting down and sort of sketching out. Well, okay, well, roughly we're going to need these kind of verite scenes to to try and tie it all together and give it also a present tense kind of narrative drive. Um, but 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 I I was lucky, Tiller, because 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 there was a story that she, I suppose already existed of of a day of this tragedy. That, that I knew we had, that, that was always, I guess, the, the, the narrative grounding. Um, and, and so I it was, felt... It's I a felt, structuring mechanism, right? It's a yeah, structuring exactly. mechanism where you have kind of the drama of the day. But then I imagine it is very editorially complex. I was thinking like, wow, this looks tricky in the edit bay. Like it's so seamless when you see it, but I'm imagining sort of like... Uh, the, the sort of craft required because you do have that, you know, that spine of kind of the day of, and then you're sort of in some sense flashing forward, flashing back. Um, and it's interesting that you started with the interviews um, and, and then kind of built from there. And are you cutting as like, do you cut the interviews and then like, okay, now this is what else we need. What archival do we have to sort of supplement? Like what's your editorial process? I, I think, you know, I've, I've definitely, I actually, I normally really like that process where you can do some shooting, you do some editing, you, you, you go and shoot some more. I didn't, we didn't have that luxury in this case. Um, the, the, there, was, there wasn't the budget to do it. Or, or the sort of the, the time. This was shoot, we shot ninety five percent in a few weeks in in Portugal. Wow! And then it, then it was like build it all build it all together um, and keep our fingers crossed. And we we did do it. We did do a, a short pickup shoot afterwards, but most of it was shot um, in in one single shoot. How long were you in the edit? It's a very good question. Um, it was an edit that was disrupted by by the pandemic. So we we shot we shot the the lion share of the film. It, it was a very weird time. We, we we went out. It was just before. This was in sort of February 2020, and there was this sort of shadow of something coming coming from from like you know from 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 China, in fact, like where it began. G gradually, people were becoming more and more suspicious of this group of this mostly foreign mm -hmm. film crew and. You know, us being outsiders, and you know, were we carry, were we carrying the disease? And you know, there was, people didn't know at that point. It was very, very confusing and scary. And gradually, as the as the as the weeks went on, right, things that we'd started to plan started to be cancelled because people were people were scared. And I remember we flew home on the flight. Everyone was wearing masks. And then we landed back in London and five days later, our country went into a national lockdown. So it was a very weird time. So that, that disrupted the edit actually. Wow. Um, for, for, for a long time. So the, the film came out much later than, than we actually initially anticipated. Um, well, I'll, 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 I'll close just by thanking you for uh, like, I'm glad that you're out there in the world and that you are, finding these stories and executing them in this, you know, elegant and brilliant way. And it literally, you know, as I was sort of sitting, you know, thinking about you, it made me think like, man, this guy's really a force of good in the world and using the gift that he has to make it a better world. So uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. And I would love, you know, at some point or another to be able to sit down and, and have a meal together because I've got about 10,000 more questions for you. And, uh, but, but mostly I just want to say thank you. Well, Taylor, that is, that, that's incredibly, incredibly kind of you to say. Um, th thank you for having me 
on the show. Um, and yes, when you're in London, um, let, let's hang out. That'd be lovely. Outstanding. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Thank you to Orlando for making this beautiful film and sharing your time to talk with us about it. And thank you to Leo for hopping on board and making sure it got out into the world. And thank you to each of the subjects who entrusted Orlando with your stories. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydapunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.